Hi everyone, I'm Leonard, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm delighted to be here tonight, sober, through a loving God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank Tim for inviting me. It's a real privilege to be here. A lot of my home group, which is the Laguna Niguel Sunday night speakers meeting, are scattered throughout the audience. They've never been to this meeting before. And I'm sure it's an incredible experience for them. I uh, have seen a lot of old, old friends tonight. And that means a lot to me. Because it seems like just yesterday that I was brought back through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and I blinked twice. And uh, here we are still on the same path, still doing the things that we were taught to do by the old-timers when we were brought into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I will be forever grateful to the old-timers. I can look back uh, and see things a lot clearer today than I could when I was brought back to Alcoholics Anonymous and even as I started to walk down the path with you. And you know, it's been simplified for me, and I'm grateful for that. And it's all about two things, and you've shown me that, and it's love and service. And it's that simple. And I just have to remember one thing, that our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help others. Alcoholics Anonymous, is the most important thing in my life. Has been, is, and will continue to be a day at a time. I had lunch today with uh, some members of Alcoholics Anonymous as we celebrated a birthday. And a lot of these guys sitting at the table have been around a long time. And we asked the birthday celebrants, you know, if he remembered his last drink. If he remembered his last drunk. And you know he talked about it and all of us around the table started to talk about it. Remembering. I know where I stand tonight as a direct result of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never want to forget from whence I come. Action has been the key for me, and I didn't even know I was involved in service or anything else for a long time. I was first introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous over 36 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was here for all of the wrong reasons because I had conditions on my sobriety. I was here to try and get a family back, which I was losing. I was here to get my employer off my back. I was here to get people off my back. I was here to get the heat off is why I was here. I didn't want to be alcoholic, and I certainly didn't want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you talked about all the things that happened to us if we continued to drink. And it went in one ear and out the other because I wasn't seeing and I wasn't hearing and I didn't want to be. You talked about the loss of homes, jobs, families, health, the institutions, the jails, and all the things. And I said, not me, I'm different. And you know, I absolutely believe that. So it was necessary for me to go out for almost three years to prove how different I was not. 
and to have most of those things happen to me. And that's what I never want to forget. If I were to tell you my complete story tonight, and I'm not going to do that, I want to talk about sobriety, it would be one of drinking at both ends of the spectrum. And I want to tell you that the pain was equally, equally as great at both ends. I'm a Californian by residence, a Kentuckian by birth, and an alcoholic by fortune. <laughs> and I drank as much as I could for as long as I could, and it damn near killed me. I was a liar, cheat, and a thief, and a con man, and a phony, and a user, and abuser of people, and I had a tendency to drink. I'll tell you a little story, and it really kind of sums up <clears throat> kind of what it used to be like with me. I got off in a bar one night, and he sat down, and the bartender said, what do you have? He said, I want three beers. The bartender put a uh, beer on the uh, bar, and the, and the guy said, I want three. He said, all at once, he said, yes. Every night, this guy came in, he ordered three drinks of three beers every time he ordered. Finally, the bartender got to know him, and he asked him one night, he said, you always order three, whatever you have, every time you order and you repeat it. He said, is there a reason for that? He said, yes, very simple. I have two brothers and we made a pact a long time ago that when any of us took a drink, we'd take a drink for the other two. The bartender said, I understand. And that went on for a while and finally the drunk walked in one night and he sat down and he said, I'll have two drinks. The bartender looked at him and said, two? He said, two. And that went on for the better part of a week and the bartender finally had it figured out that one of his brothers had died. So the drunk came in the next night and he sat down at the bar and the bartender walked over to him and he said, I'm terribly sorry about one of your brothers. And the drunk said, what do you mean? He said, well, I figured out, you told me why you always ordered three and now you're ordering two that one of your brothers passed away. He said, oh no. He said, well, what happened? He said, my doctor told me to quit drinking. <laughs> A lot of people told me to quit drinking along the way, and it went in one ear and out the other. I um, can remember a few things. Uh, you know, very early in life I made the determination that I wanted to be a man. And my interpretation of a man is the guy that goes out in the world and competes and there's no such thing as failure. And I tried to operate within that framework for a lot of years. I built a wall around Lynn Wilder very early in life, and it got thicker and thicker and thicker with time. And outwardly, I was like the rock of Gibraltar, but inwardly, where I lived, I was like a bucket of jello. And I discovered that magic elixir called booze, and booze very simply brought my insides up the way I appeared to you outwardly. And I could operate within that comfort zone. Alcohol was the greatest friend I ever had until it turned on me. The four C's really characterized my drinking, because I drank in the beginning for comfort, then I drank for courage, then I crossed that line from controlled to uncontrolled drinking, and I drank compulsively. And the end result in every area of my life was total corruption. Change should have been my middle name because when I became uncomfortable in any given area of my life, I made a change. In other words, I was a runner, a drinker, and a drunk for a lot of years. They talked to me very early in life about what great potential I had, but they always put the word on their butt. They were to talk to me also about attitudes before they talked to me about my alcoholism. A lot of people told me I had to have a change of attitudes. I not only was a user of alcohol and some of those magic tablets, but I was a user of people, places, and things, and I did anything that was necessary to support my habit. I um, was to get out of school, and it was expected that I'd go in the family business, and I turned my, um, my back on that to go out and to prove myself. I spent a lot of time out there trying to prove me to you, desperately trying to prove you, me to you. 
After I was sober and alcoholic anonymous for some time, I discovered I was desperately trying to prove me to me. I got out in the business world. I went to work for an oil company. And yes, they talked to me about my attitudes, but they very shortly started talking to me about the way I drank. They said, Lynn, why do you drink the way you drink, say the things you say, act the way you act? And uh, I thought they were about to find out about me. I'd have to make a change. I made some changes, and sometimes I was fired from jobs as a direct result of my alcoholism. And I stayed in that job, and I finally got fired from that job. And I had an athletic background, and I identified uh, some with our second 10-minute uh, uh, speaker tonight. I had an opportunity to get reinvolved in athletics at a coaching and scouting level, and uh, I was a leader of men every day and a drunk every night, the Jekyll and Hyde that we know so much about. And it wasn't long at all until they were asking me the same questions, you know, and the results were the same because my disease was progressing. And I was to get fired from that job, too, as a direct result of my alcoholism, and I ended up going back to my hometown. Looking around, all my friends that I'd grown up with, were successful, or at least that was my perception. They all had jobs and they were married. I went into the family business and, and continued to drink uh, and to drink a lot. And I decided that I should get married, unfortunately, for the lady that was involved. And I don't have to tell you what happened here. I'm an insecure, immature, irresponsible drunk, so I get married. And we had a little baby out of that marriage, and I did not see that baby for 11 and a half years as a direct result of my disease. And I had to go on from there. And it's one of progression. My story is your story. If you did it, I did it. And if I didn't do it, I thought about doing it. And I had to go on from there. And just one other quick story, and, uh, and that is in 1963, I'd already been introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I came to one morning. Uh, there weren't treatment facilities around then. They detoxed you. And I've been detoxed a lot of places and then put on the street. And I'd run in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous to get the heat off. But one morning I came to in December of 1963 and there was no doorknob on my side of the door. And I had become a blackout drinker and I wasn't sure where I was and I was to find out that I was in Millage Hill, Georgia, which was the Georgia uh, State Nuthouse. And I wasn't in there in an alcoholism unit or anything, I was just in there as one of the, one of, one of the number. And you know, as I stand here tonight, I don't ever remember them saying anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or talking to me about the disease of alcoholism. But so what, I've already been introduced to AA. And the way they treated you in there was they gave you massive doses of Librium and Thorazine. And they gave you enough Thorazine, you've heard about the Thorazine shuffle, that if you got up and down the hall in the day, you'd have a hell of a day. And I knew one thing, that if I were ever to get out of there, that I'd never drink again, because I was as frightened as I'd ever been in my life. I'd been in and out of a lot of detoxes and, and different places, and, but I was really frightened in there. And they finally let me out. And I knew that I would never drink again. And I ended up back in my home team, uh, in my hometown, with a, uh, in, in an arena where I'd spent a lot of time. And uh, three days after I'm out of Milledgeville, I walk across the street, walk into a bar and order a drink. Insanity, yes. Alcoholism, yes. Progression, yes. They took me out of that hotel a couple of days later and about five days after that, two men appeared at my jail cell where I had been spending the last two days and uh, as a direct result of my disease. And they had that look in their eye, and I didn't know what to tell them, and they took me out of that jail cell, down to the bottom floor, across the back parking lot, and put me on a bus. And Tommy looked at me, and he said, Lynn, what is it? And he'd been my first basketball coach. 
And I didn't know what to tell him. And John looked at me and said, Lynn, if you ever come back here and do the things you've done this last week, we're going to lock you up permanently. All as a direct result of my disease. And I had to go on from there. I'll just simply tell you, in 1964, I got off an airplane at LAX. I came out of a blackout. And I was still defending my right to drink. And I was standing right in the middle of my wardrobe. And I never want to forget the next five and a half or so months because they were spent on the streets in and out of different uh, facilities in Los Angeles. The Bemini, the Shoreham, the Royal Palm, the Old Mission, MacArthur Park. I did whatever was necessary to support my habit. I would come out of the park sometimes. A man named Matt Campion would find me and he would feed me. And I was terrified and no one knew or cared where I was. I finally ended up at the Cecil Hotel and in a room with two other men. And I was put on the street, not by the hotel, but by those two men. And I was taken to a, a motel where a man would always give me a bed at the corner of 3rd and Vermont. And that's where I had my last drink. And I had no idea that it was to be my last drink. Because in the end, the booze beat me to death. Two, two members of Alcoholics Anonymous showed up, and I hadn't called them. And they were to put me in a sanitarium on Fairfax Avenue called the Beverly Lake. And two or three days later, a man was standing there that was telling me the same things I'd been told before. I had no idea that I'd had my last drink or that a surrender had taken place in my life. I cried out in silent desperation one more time, and I was brought back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to move back into Bimini because I had a lot of physical problems, and a doctor was treating me at the corner of 6 in New Hampshire. And uh, I worked in the kitchen, and all I could do was show up at Alcoholics Anonymous every day, and I was real rummy. And I stayed in the Bimini for some time, and I started going to meetings morning, noon, and night. And uh, I was to hear a man very early in my sobriety that uh, I thought no human being could live the way that man talks. And later on, two or three months later, I was taken to Beverly Hills Men's Stag, and I was to meet this man and the men that were there with him, and they said he walks as he talks. And he became one of my great teachers, and he became the teacher of thousands of us. And I'm just grateful for the old-timers like that. I uh, finally was released, and I moved to San Fernando Valley, and I moved in with two sober alcoholics that were going to meetings every day, and I'd get up and walk to the North Hollywood Clubhouse, and I'd be standing there when the doors opened. And I would walk in, and... Uh, and I'd hear the laughter, and I had my fist clenched and gritting my teeth and hating what you represented. But I didn't hate you at all. I hated myself. And there were guys there that really had tough love. There was a guy every day that tell, would tell me not to say anything. He'd say, shut up. You have nothing to say. His name was Larry Blake. And there were guys there that would take me out and tell me things like Alcoholics Anonymous is not an employment agency. It's not the dating game. It's not a finance company. It's a place to come and to get sober and to stay sober a day at a time, and it's here for the taking if you want what we have. And I hated them. But thank God they had the courage to tell me that. There's a guy that has 52 years uh, in this area today that took me out one night and explained to me that as high as you get an Alcoholics Anonymous is sober. But I kept going to meetings. A man in the valley had an old Buick that was on blocks, a man named Fred, Fred Massey that died from our disease, and he put four retreads on there, and uh, we used to fill that thing up, uh, fill that car full of people and go to meetings all over. You could hear it coming for three miles away. But we went to meetings. We hung together. We were in coffee shops after the meetings, between the meetings, and, and all of those things. One of my regular groups was the Monday Night Ohio Street meeting. I didn't know anything about service. 
I came here so filled with fear. I'm not one that came to Alcoholics Anonymous having ever examined the underlying causes. Sure, I've had all the insecurities, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of impending doom, all of the things that you have, but I've never stopped to look at any of them. I'd just say, give me another, give me another, give me another, until it all stopped working. The coffee maker got drunk at uh, uh, one night, and they said, anybody can make coffee, and I said, I can do that. So I went in that kitchen at Ohio Street, and I uh, made the coffee for that group. I wouldn't come out of the kitchen, but then we didn't have styrofoam cups. We washed the mugs. And I did, the only thing I know that it made me feel a little bit as a part of, and I'll never forget that, because I could see in your eyes that what you had, and I knew I didn't have it. And by the end of three or four months, I was making uh, coffee for three groups in that building and two groups outside that building. And I was grateful, and I didn't know that that was service. I just know how it made me feel. And finally, uh, they suggested to me very strongly in the valley that uh, I get a job. And they told me exactly how to do that. They said, get the Los Angeles Times out, go to the help wanted column, go down there, call the numbers, set the interviews up, and the first person that offers you a job, say yes. I said, I can do that, but I couldn't. On a good day, I'd call and make the appointment, but I'd never get there for the interview. You see, this forced me in to looking at the underlying causes. I had so much fear going in my life, it was incredible. Fear of exposure, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of abandonment, just raw fear. I was about five months sober, and a man called me, an old-timer, he said, we're going to go on a men's retreat. Be ready at 4 o'clock Friday and said, bring a toothbrush, a bathing suit, and a change of clothes. I said, I don't have a bathing suit and I don't have any money. He said, it doesn't matter. He and two other men picked me up and I was in the back seat listening. I had no idea where we were going. And they talked about a Jesuit retreat house and I said, oh my God, they're going to try to convert me. <laughs> I grew up in a very strict religion, but I didn't suffer from the, that disease of being a Catholic. Mine was worse because I've been raised as a Southern Baptist. I was to go up that steps at Manresa and meet a man that was literally to lead me out of the wilderness. He was a Catholic priest named Barney Nixon. He was the greatest teacher of the 12 steps I've ever encountered, and I'm grateful for that man and for that experience. I was to finally get a job as a janitor in a church where an AA meeting was held, and I was fired from that job. I found myself walking down Vineland Avenue the next morning. I looked in the window of a service station and said, help wanted, and I went in and he said, I'm looking for someone to pump gas on the swing shift. Can you do it? And I said, yes. And I started to pump gas. And they let me go in that job because I wasn't bondable. They then said to me, somebody said, Lynn, would you like to sell encyclopedias? I said, I can do that. But I had so much fear going, I couldn't ring doorbells. But you know, I kept showing up at Alcoholics Anonymous on a daily basis. I never want to forget my first year. My total income was $1,237 and I was overpaid. But some doors started to open for me, and a lot of clothes also. But that's life, and that's what I was to find out. My second year of sobriety, I was at the Brentwood meeting. A beautiful lady went to the podium to read uh, chapter 5. She was tall and blonde and young and gorgeous. And it's a program of attraction, and I wanted what she had. <laughs> and we were to fall in love and have a wonderful life together. We were all involved, and there are people sitting in this room tonight where we were all involved in service, convention work, and doing different things at meetings, and, and um, you know, and we moved to Laguna Beach in 1971. And life was good. And uh, 
My original sponsor, after I had done the eighth and ninth step, said to me, and I knew I hadn't forgotten it, he said to me, what about uh, that baby, Lynn, you haven't seen in 10 years? I said, oh, yeah. And he told me exactly what to do because she was living in Chicago. I then decided to do it on my own terms, which means manipulation and control. And any time I did that, I was in trouble. I was pulling a lawyer off bar stools in Los Angeles, pretending to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that wasn't what I was doing at all. I wanted him to get visitation rights so I could see that daughter, and he did. I went to L.A., actually got on an airplane. I called her mother. I said, I'm coming to Chicago. I want to see Gail. Gail's our daughter. I want to spend the weekend with her. I'd done everything but take a drink because I was on the worst dry drunk I pray I'll ever be on. I got off that airplane at O'Hare. I checked in a hotel in downtown Chicago. You had taught me extremely well because I went in the room. I called Alcoholics Anonymous. They said there's a 6 o'clock meeting two blocks from you at a place called the Mustard Seed. And I hit the pavement and walked in that meeting. And the only thing I can tell you, I walked out a little less crazy than when I walked in. I called her mother and she said, Lynn, she doesn't want to see you. And thank God it happened that way because it put me on my knees in that hotel room that night. And I said, God, you take it. Thy will be done. I got up the next morning and wrote them both a separate letter of amends. And I'll never forget going down and mailing them. And I was to get the second gift of my, life, of my sobriety, and that was freedom. Freedom from all the things that had me trapped for so many years. I don't know about you, but when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had so many secrets. My secrets had secrets. <laughs> they told me to tell the truth, and I said, which truth? I had a lot of difficulty with the truth for a long, long time. A man named Father Ted Hatton helped me with that tremendously. You know, he said, Lynn, you, you, you stay away from the nickel and dime line just like you stay away from the drink. Because, you know, I think honesty is the key. It has been for me. And I was a long time getting there. We come in here, we uncover, we discover, we discard, and we recover. And life went on, and life was good, and uh, we're in Laguna, and uh, our second child was born down there. Uh, Allison was born here. And, uh, and anyway, uh, I stayed in touch with that daughter in Chicago, and uh, finally I got a card from her and said, I'd like to see you. And she came into our home in Laguna Beach, and uh, she's been here a long, long time. She's my oldest. And, uh, we all sat two separate families many years ago and watched her graduate from college. And her mother turned to me and she said, Lynn, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for Gail. I said, don't thank me, thank Alcoholics Anonymous. She went on to law school and she's been a practicing attorney for some time. Pam and I had two. One was born to Good Samaritan Hospital. The second one, our son, uh, was born in Laguna Beach. We stayed active. She was active. I was active. Life was good. 1984, I was at a conference in Florida on a Saturday night with a friend of mine named Ramona from uh, Oklahoma, a great Alamon lady. And we went to the room after the Saturday night meeting, called Pam. She had a lower back pain. She said it was nothing, but it was something because ten and a half months later she was dead. And we spent most of that time at the UCLA hospital, and a lot of you were there on a daily basis. You surrounded us. You surrounded our children, and I've seen that happen over and over and over again. And thank God for that. You know, we help each other. We love one another. We serve one another. We may talk badly about each other, but if someone's in trouble, <laughs> we're there. And we were all there when she stepped in the next room, and, uh, you know, I had no idea what the mothers of the world do, but I found out quickly. And life goes on. And one more time, uh, I had to become willing, and willingness has been a key for me. And um, 
I was to get a job where I had to get up uh, and commute to Carson every day, and I thank God every day I got on that freeway for the opportunity. And I could stand here and talk to you about um, about life, which we all experience. And I don't know why I thought possibly that I was exempt. You know, it's like I lived in a fantasy world. But it's called life, and life goes on. And and the tools that we're given here and that I've been given enable us to to do whatever is necessary. Uh, and I've learned to do that. I mean, when Pam was at UCLA, I would come down into that hospital at night, get in my car, and sometimes I would I would just sob all the way to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Whether I went to the Palisades, whether I went to Ohio Street, whether I went to the Arlington Group, wherever I went, I would go take my seat in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've always done that because regardless of what's going on in my life. Because you see, this is the one thing that works in my life, and I continue to get up and to move. Action is the key. And my definition of love is action. And I am convinced that this alcoholic came into the world of the Islam. The alcohol was added and my disease was complete. I still have the ism today. But you've taught me what to do about it. And the more involved I am in your lives and, and being of service, the less involved I am in mine. And you know, I'm so grateful that I've learned that and you taught me that in the beginning. I'm a traditionalist. I'm a center-of-the-road type of old-timer. And that's what works for me. I don't know what works for you, but whatever it is, keep doing it a day at a time. But I have learned through the process what works best for me. Uh, to powwow a week or so ago, uh, I was sitting at poolside one morning and uh, talking to Clancy. And, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, I didn't know he'd had some of the physical things that had been going on with him. But about how we get up every day and we put one foot in front of the other. And I get up and I thank God every morning for the opportunity of another day and another day of sobriety and we just start to move. And that works. I see people go away from this program and I see them never come back. At the table today at lunch, I was telling them about, I've been in Montana over the weekend, I was telling them about a lady that was introduced to me, she celebrated 30 years on Friday night. She went home Friday night. Her daughter's been trying to get sober off and on for a long time, has three small children. She's 32 years old, lives in New York City with her husband. One more time, she had gone to treatment. She walked out of treatment in Florida and supposedly headed to New York, and they couldn't find her. She got a call when she got home Friday night. They found her dead from our disease. Another guy at the table was talking today about someone he'd gotten sober with, a lady, that got away from Alcoholics Anonymous, and she took her own life about two weeks ago. I know for fact, and you do too, that the disease we have is a killer. I also know that there's some sitting in this room tonight that are going to die from this disease. I want to do everything in my power to be sure that it's not this alcoholic. But Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a way to live that I never, ever dreamed possible. It's just incredible the things that have gone on. I mean, I've experienced it in this cold life. I um, became willing almost three years ago 
to do anything that was necessary, and I, I went back in the corporate world. And I've been with this company for three years. I commuted to Los Angeles for a couple of years, and now we've, uh, we've got site development uh, in, in Irvine. I'm the oldest person in the company. I've got people I work with that are my children, my adult children's age. But I want to tell you, it's, it's fantastic. I'm enjoying it. Attitude has just been the key for me. And they talked to me for a long, long time about attitude, 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 prior to Alcoholics Anonymous and then after coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. So one thing I've discovered, and I really believe in it, and that is if your behavior is appropriate and you keep it that way, then your attitudes will follow. Because that's the way it's been with me. I grew up with a God of fear and one of judgment. And the God that I've been given here is totally different. I had difficulty with that God, though, and because God became my friend. I had difficulty with that God during Pam's illness because I prayed every day, morning, noon, and night, for the miracle. And the miracle I wanted for was, was for that lady to live, and I saw that that wasn't happening, and I got angry. But you see, I've had to get out beyond everything that goes on in my life to see the true meaning of what it is. And the miracle I prayed for happened because I got out beyond it and I could look back and it became very clear to me. He allowed her to live where we could complete that relationship in a loving and a wonderful way. The area in my life where I've had to do the most work has been in relationships. And that doesn't mean just hand and chin and every relationship in my life. At work, with my children, in all arenas. I was 19 years sober, and a man asked me one night, he said, Lynn, what kind of relationship do you have with yourself? I said, terrific, because that was my set answer. And you know, I got to thinking about that, and I had to take a look at that, and I had to one more time, and it was frightening, become vulnerable, and look at that again. Because I have learned that if my relationship with myself is okay and with my higher power okay, then all the other relationships are, are fine. And I know that I'm not only powerless over alcohol, but I'm powerless over people, places, and things. That first step applies to that in my life. And the gifts you've given me here, and particularly through the steps, you know, I'm grateful to the old-timers that took the time to take me through the steps. Not only Barney, but there was a man at the, at the Beverly Hills of Memstag. I didn't like him. His name was Eddie Bowen. And he came up to me one night and he said, what do you do on Tuesday night? I said, I go to Arlington Group. He said, you don't go there till 8 o'clock. You'd be at my house at 6 o'clock. And he took me through his version of the 12 steps. And I'll be forever grateful to him. And the men that took the time that showed me through example. And those are the people that have attracted me, the men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous. The ones I watch out there in their everyday living, applying these principles. It's easy to come in here and sit in these meetings, you know, and to say we're applying the principles of this program. But I find it more difficult in the workplace, and particularly in the home. And I've had to learn what to do in those situations. You know, it tells us that God could and would, if so. And he does. And all of my uh, children are grown up, and they're self-supporting through their own contributions, and I'm grateful to that. But you know, we've all have our stories to tell. And we have our stories to tell in sobriety about what goes on. But the one thing that has never moved for me 
is Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the one thing that's always there. I, uh, after the uh, International in Seattle, uh, I got a phone call. We were celebrating a birthday. Uh, a group of us had gone to Orcas Island. I walked out of the men's room. He said it was an emergency. I said it must be for someone else. It wasn't because one of those three had tried to take their life. And they were in a whole hospital, and I couldn't get out of there that night. And there were about 30, 30 or 40 alcoholics and members of Al-Anon there. And they surrounded me all night so I could get a plane the next morning. A little seaplane flew in there. And I'll never forget just the pilot and myself as we took off. To get me to SeaTac, to get back to John Wayne, I just closed my eyes and I said, God, it's in your hands. And I was to get off that airplane, and uh, I didn't know whether that child was alive or not. And the child was a teenager. But she lived and she got through that. And, and, and you know, I can look at my, uh, I can look at uh, those children today and, and others and uh, whether or not they have the disease or not, I don't know. I certainly see the ism in one of mine. But I do know one thing, there's a place for them. Because I've given up all hope. Because, you see, I swung in and out of the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous all across these United States. And I knew AA didn't work. I knew there was no God in my life because if there were God in my life, why was I in the shape that I was in? But, you see, Alcoholics Anonymous does work. There is a loving God. And it's incredible what happens here. And uh, my son, as we speak, is flying in tonight from the East Coast. And we're all going to be together this weekend. And I'm grateful for those moments. Uh, I'm so, so very grateful. I uh, have a lady in my life today that uh, I'm very fond of. And uh, it started as a friendship, and it's grown from there. And, um, you know, every day I get up. I do it automatically. And I thank God. And my prayer is, Please enable me to reach out and to help someone who's suffering and in need. And I'm grateful that he's done a lot of that. And then every night, I thank God for the day. And I pray for the alcoholics. Because you see, that's what we're all about. I think we're here. We're put here to help one another. And that's what works. And that's what love and service is all about. It's wonderful to come in this group. I have a tremendous respect for this group. The structure of it, I mean, is just incredible. There's no other group like it in the world. And you know that, you hear that, but it's a fact. And thank God that Alcoholics Anonymous still is like this. I'm going to close with a story that I always close with because it really sums up what I'm trying to say tonight. And it's the story of a man that owned the fine Swiss watch. And he loved it more than any possession he'd ever had. And it stopped running on him one night. And he wound it and it run for a while and then it would stop. And he finally took it to a watchmaker. The watchmaker repaired it and he went through a series of watchmakers and he knew not what else to do. And one morning very early he was sitting in his den with his desk lamp on one more time winding that watch to put it on his wrist. And as he started to do that, he noticed what he thought were a couple of small scratches that he got his magnifying glass at. 
and they weren't small scratches at all, it was the small inscription that said very simply, in case of trouble, return to Maker. And you know I love that. In case of trouble, return to Maker. God could and would and does. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love being sober. But most of all, I love all of you. Thank you.